Colorado. 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 <laughs> Colorado, Rocky Mountain High. No. Colorado. He doesn't sing it Colorado. Yes. Should we start? Yeah. Bum, bum, bum. This is Brecken and Jonathan from Gem Junkies, and this is episode four. Four. I had to count in my head because it wasn't one or two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So episode four, and last week we had a great episode on Australian opal, and we did get a few questions and comments. And one of the interesting questions was. So tell us how hard are teeth? Teeth are a five, five. on the most scale. So Which I find been... really interesting because that crazy miner that had opal dentures was actually doing better than the rest of us because yeah. his yeah. opals were harder than our teeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's and that's the so that's a, that was kind of a, an interesting factoid that uh teeth are only a five. I was surprised. So we should. But you said teeth are harder than steel as well. Yeah. Yeah. So steel isn't that hard. It's. I guess it can bend pretty easy. Yeah, you can bend it and scratch it and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Moving on to Ruby. Yes. Today's topic Ruby, Ruby, the king of all gemstones. That's what its name means in Sanskrit. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Ratnaraj means king of gems. Wow. That's cool. And but it gets its ruby name from Latin. Okay. Which means, which is ruber, ruber, I think, which means red. Yeah, I don't speak Latin, so. I don't either. <laughs> I didn't take it. My dad wanted me to be a doctor. I said no. The The interesting thing about ruby is, is that I think a lot of people don't realize that ruby and sapphire are essentially the same gemstone. They're both part of the corundum family. Yeah. When I learned this, when I first came into the gem world, it was like mind blown. I remember (sighs) sitting there thinking, what? What? Yeah. What? So They're the same thing. Sapphire comes in every color of the rainbow. When it's red, it's a ruby. Yeah. Mind blown. Still, to this day, it gives me like little goosebumps. Like, what? And then we in America have pink sapphire the rest of the world really calls anything that's pink even in the pink pink is considered a ruby in the rest of the world and it wasn't until more recently that there even was any distinction between pink sapphire and ruby and still when you talk about like star rubies uh which uh it's where you know a cabochon shows chatoyancy uh you get the the pink ones are still considered uh right but gia gia here in america bases are the range for ruby is an orangey red to a purpley red right so no pink no pink in america no pink in america it's pink sapphire we like it but ruby is the color red so the thing that i found really interesting was anything red back in medieval time before we had like uh gemology was a ruby Right, and it wasn't until the late 1800s that they even started like studying gemology, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until the early 1900s that we even had like gemological labs, and it wasn't until like the 1920s that they even had 
you know, with the founding of the Gemological Institute of America and all that kind of stuff that you actually had that that jewelers even had a place to actually send in to have testing done to know the difference between the different gemstones. gemstones right. So a lot of uh, a lot of your crown jewels, probably the most famous one, the Black Prince Ruby, is actually a spinel. Yeah, red spinel. And that's one of the interesting things is spinels tend to come in much larger crystal sizes than ruby does. And so a lot of your very, very giant so-called rubies were actually spinel. Yep. And a lot, the rubies were highly prized and desired uh, throughout medieval and uh, ancient times. They signified wealth, power, nobility. Uh, think of a ruby like it's a power stone, right? Yeah, That's it's, a what power, we it's a power stone. And the other great thing is that that makes ruby and sapphire and corundum as a whole a power stone is the fact that you can wear it every day. Well, right, that's the hardness, but I'm talking about the color. So yeah. you think about the color of red, it's passion, fury, anger, desire. That's all you think of. All your strongest emotions yeah. all wrapped up into... So we like to say not everyone can wear a ruby. No. It's kind of a self-purchase, I think, right? Yeah, I think a lot of... No, anniversary. I think anniversary some, some people do yeah. anniversary gifts for... So we talked about kind of ruby history and ruby lore. Should we talk about how rubies are formed? Yeah. Do you know what process forms rubies? What process forms rubies? It's a metamorphic process. So the way I like to think about it is a lot of your rubies, your most prized rubies are found in Myanmar, which is Burma, which is by the Himalayas, right? Yeah. And so you think of all the pressure that's caused or created when you, yeah, where you push the plates together and that's where your ruby is found. Along those plates, it's due to the heat and pressure from mountain formation. Cool. Yeah. So in Burma, do you know what kind of deposits they're found in? What kind of deposits? Marble deposits. Right. Why are marble deposits cool, John? Because marble is white and ruby is red. It has a great color distinction. It is, but it also is really low in iron. Okay, so it makes really bright, yeah, really, really bright, bright rubies. So chromium, which colors ruby, uh, fluoresces red, and when you Very have sharp. iron in the stone, it kind of blocks the fluorescence. Right. So when you go out into the sun, the ruby really screams, or you put it under UV light, it really gl- glows a bright red. Yeah. Now, what happens with rubies from like Cambodia or Thailand? Is that also metamorphic? No, so those are, well, yes, they are metamorphic, but they're found in a different type of deposit. It's a basalt rock instead of a marble. Oh, okay. And there's more iron in basalt. Okay. Which blocks the fluorescence. The fluorescence, so you have kind of darker, sleepier rubies from... From East Africa and from Thailand. Thailand, Cambodia. Cambodia. Mm -hmm. What about from, like... Greenland. Yeah, Greenland, I'm not quite sure because that's still a really new deposit. New deposit. I think those are more bright. And same with like Vietnam had those. Yeah, but Vietnam mm. has those because they're close to the Himalayas and they have the marble deposit. Okay. So Vietnam has really bright, Burma has really bright. I'm not sure so much because there's also material coming out of Afghanistan and Pakistan right now as well. But the cool thing I like to think about in ruby formation is think about Pangaea. 
Okay. 300 million years ago. Yeah, when all the world was kind of like one, one supercontinent. One supercontinent. And you can draw a line right down Pangea, and that's where all your rubies found. Isn't that cool? Yeah. We'll have to put up on the uh, on our blog, kind of put up a, a Pangea with a, a line with where all the deposits are found. Yeah. That's, so if cool. you if you keep following the line, it ends in Antarctica. So there could be rubies yeah, in Antarctica. Yeah, so there is a theory that there's ruby in Antarctica. But so with enough global warming. <laughs> we could find rubies <laughs> in Antarctica. We rubies in Antarctica. Once you get under all the ice cap. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that's kind of how rubies formed. Um, ruby mining is pretty much open pit mining. They kind of scrape off a layer of dirt and kind of sift through that, put it through a little jig thing and shake it out. It's heavy. Oh, we can talk about that. Yeah, the specific gravity. Yeah, the specific gravity of ruby is four. It's four, so it's really heavy. It's heavier than a lot of your other like gravelly rock material. So when they're mining it out, they put it through um, a jig. A jig. Yeah. Yeah, they put it through a jig, and it kind of shakes, and so all of your ruby material gets trapped in the first two or three sections of that jig, yeah. and then everything else kind of gets washed out. So when they're sorting. What they've processed, they really only have to look in that first one or two boxes of boxes the jig through the, the wash jig. plant. Is yeah, because it it's so heavy that it, it tends to go to the bottom right in that yeah, so that first part. So, Jonathan, what are the major ruby sources on the market today? So, can't talk about ruby without talking about Burma, which is the oldest and most well known. Known as Myanmar today. Yes, known as Myanmar today, and then the with. The most material right now that's probably coming out is out of Mozambique, mm-hmm. which the Mozambique rubies are really beautiful and amazing. Mm-hmm. And Gemfields is the one that owns most of the most of the mining the mining in Mozambique, Mozambique. and then they auction that off as rough to gem dealers. Mm-hmm. And they have uh, these huge gem auctions, and they've really kind of driven the price of ruby up. Yeah, it's the. Turning, turning the rough into an auction format has definitely driven the price of ruby up as well as, as global demand. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Chinese uh, favor the red color. I mean, that's the color of their flag. Their that's, yeah, that's, that's their, their favorite. favorite. So as there's been more Chinese wealth, they've been going after the very best rubies, which, you know, we're in a world market. So that's driven the price of ruby up as well. We kind of got into the ruby business with in another East African company in Madagascar. Yeah, so in Vatu Mandre, there was a very big find. It came in the early 2000s, and there was still plenty of production coming out of Burma at that point. And so a lot of the dealers didn't want to get involved in the Madagascar because it was a different color than the Burmese goods. It's it was kind of a, like darker. It was a little bit deeper red and a little bit more... Uh, but we found that that color to be quite popular in the U.S., and so we were able to come come into the U.S. market with quite a large amount of of Madagascar ruby. Is none of it was huge. I mean, the largest ones I think were um, four or five carats mm-hmm. were the largest that came out of that that find uh, that were clean. And we got into it right when the Tom Lantos Act kind of banned Burmese ruby. A little bit before, yeah. but not a lot before. And so that really put us in a very strong position in, in, in ruby, ruby in the U.S. For, for a good five to ten years. Yeah. Before they lifted the ban. Yeah. And we ran out of 
And we ran out of and Ruby. And we ran out of Madagascar <laughs> Ruby because the mine kind of dried up. And so we ran out of supply. So now all we have left is like four millimeter and smaller. Except for that one 477. Yeah. We have a, a 477 mm-hmm. left. I, I think that when we talk about Ruby and kind of valuing a Ruby, it's important to kind of talk about it about it compared to diamonds almost because most people know how to value a diamond, right? The four C's, carrot, clarity, color, and cut. But when it comes to valuing a ruby, the four C's are kind of out the window. The most important thing in a colored gemstone when you value a colored gemstone is the color. Yeah, and color is far and away more more important than the rest of the four C's, whereas in diamond, they're more equally distributed mm-hmm. Between them, they're valued more equally, whereas color is definitely the most important. Now, that's not saying that if the clarity is horrible and the color is good, it still doesn't carry nearly as much value as when the clarity is good and the color is good. There's definitely a difference there. And same with carrot and how big it is and all that makes a difference, but definitely color is But inclusions are okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd be really hard-pressed to find a ruby that didn't have an inclusion in it. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing that as we're talking about, you know, valuing a ruby, we should also talk about treatment a little bit too, mm-hmm. is that the 90-some percent of all ruby is heat treated. Mm-hmm. And the heat treatment has more to do with clarity than anything else is is that you're adjusting, you know, you're, you're, you're breaking down some of those crystals that are trapped inside the stone. Right, so rubies are typically filled with what's called rutile needles which are also what give it the chatoyancy to make the star. Yeah. And when you have not heat treated a ruby, the crystals are all intact in these beautiful kind of lattice formations. But the minute you heat treat a ruby, it breaks up those needles. So when you look at it under a microscope, you can see little sections and kind of the plot or... Almost like dotted lines. Yeah, dotted lines of what the lattice used to look like. Yeah, and so that's a common treatment. It's a standard standard treatment, and it's opened it up that to have a lot more beautiful rubies in the world than we would without them. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing wrong with treatment. It's all about disclosure. They've been heat treating rubies for hundreds, of years. hundreds of years. Yeah, it's the the old style technique. I think the Sri Lankans started heat treatment back way back when. Way back, blowing so. blowing like fire. <laughs> like through a little pipe blowing and like turning it. it. It's pretty cool. You can Google heat treatment, like old heat treatments and see pictures of how they used to do it. But one thing I wanted to mention too on inclusions is that sometimes inclusions in gemstones are super beautiful. And if you want to see some really cool inclusions or photographs of inclusions up close, you can check out our friend Nathan Renfro. He works for GIA, but he also has an Instagram page um, you can find him at Micro World of Gems, and you can see different inclusions in gemstones. And he has some really cool ones of rubies. Yeah, yeah, the rubies definitely have some really beautiful inclusions, as well as all colored gemstones. But yeah, he does a beautiful job of photographing them. The one thing you do want to be careful about with inclusions is, yeah, they're okay to have in a ruby, in a ruby, but you don't want any fractures reaching the surface of the gem yeah, because that, that can lead. The- that can lead to durability issues. Yeah. One one solid hit to a, a you can snap the ruby in two. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's something to definitely watch for if you're out buying ruby is you don't want anything that breaks the surface. Another treatment that that um you kind of need to 
keep your eye out for is if you do have a lot of those surface reaching fractures, they'll kind of, they'll go in and it's called glass filled rubies. Right. And so they'll put a kind of, it's a glass filler. Think about when you fix a crack on your windshield and you kind of go in and you put that material in there that solidifies the crack and makes it so it won't crack anymore. They're, they're been, they've been doing that a lot with the material from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yep, a lot from there as well as a lot from, from Mogok. Oh. Uh, actually, more from Mong, Mong Shu. I'm sorry, from Mong Shu. Yeah, in Burma. Yeah, or in, in Myanmar. Burma. Yeah, in Myanmar. More of the Mong Shus do a lot of, a lot of that. Um, the other, La- so then there's one more, there's one more treatment that's also out there on the market and it turns the, the, uh, the rubies almost like a cinnamon, cinnamon color. Yeah, they have a little orange, more yeah, orange a little orange, And that's when they do lattice diffusion and that's under super high heat and that can, uh, can turn, can turn gem, uh, ruby material or corundum material that normally wouldn't be red and it turns it more of a cinnamon color. They add boron. Yeah, I think it's boron. They add boron to it when they heat it. And it kind of, uh, the gemstone, I guess, would soak it up, but only a thin layer on the surface. So if you go to recut that gemstone or anything else, the color is going to be different under that top layer. I think it's also important to talk about the ruby market and where the prices of ruby are kind of at. They seem, I mean, the demand for ruby has increased greatly over the last, I would say, five years. Yeah. And there was, I think the most expensive ruby sold was sold two years ago for like $32 million. It was a 25 carat stone. Wow. Yeah. That is. That's, that's crazy for ruby. Like you, that's what you think diamonds should go for. Well, rubies are a lot more rare than diamonds. They are so more rare. It only makes sense. There's a lot less of them out there, especially in that kind of size range. Mm-hmm. So that's very unusual for rubies to see them in that kind of size. Right. Anything, I think, over a carat in ruby... And the price goes way up. Yeah, there's it's definitely exponential. It's not like one plus one is two. It's no. <laughs> a no. two carat ruby yeah, is like per- five times what a one carat is. Right. Your per carat price goes up, like Jonathan said, five times between each carat jump. Our ruby supplier, he kind of has a really cool story. He has a very cool story is that his... Uh, his family was were the first non-whites that were allowed in the British-controlled streeter mines in Burma uh, back in the the what late 1800s, mm-hmm. and so the his family goes way back in the ruby and sapphire business. And his mother would tell us stories of how she used to play in the, in garden, the garden with ruby crystals the size of marbles the size of marbles because they were too small to cut at the time yeah and that was before treatment got as good as it is now and so they were probably also included yeah but still but pretty still ruby crystals cool. the size of marbles when you're a kid yeah. can you imagine and that that also shows kind of a, a neat thing that you get to you get to know these these families in the gem business and how far back these families get connected and have been in the industry is, is really an interesting part of the industry. And one of the reasons that I've, that I've loved the industry and came into the industry was due to those relationships. Yeah. They're some of our best family friends. We're, so we're business partners, but before that we're friends. Absolutely. Yeah. Even if our business changes from year to year and sometimes we sell more Ruby and sometimes we sell more Garnet and some, sometimes you know, we sell more Opal, but all of our suppliers are friends and same with our customers. 
And so that's one of the great things about the jewelry industry is the relationships. Well, I think that wraps up Ruby for today. And so Aww. thank you for listening to another episode of Gem Junkies. Gem Junkies. And feel free again to uh, leave us any comments or if you have any questions, feel free to email us at gemjunkies at parlaygems.com. And we wanted to give a big thank you to Dallin Burns, who created our intro and exit music. And there's going to be a link for his website on our blog. And we also want to thank Savannah Rose, who does all the editing of our Thanks, podcast. Savannah. Thanks, Savannah. She's in the room with us right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, please, uh, if you're enjoying it, please subscribe and uh, and and rate us if, if, if you like us. Only if you like us. <laughs> Only if you like us. If you want to see what we're doing and kind of featuring in our business, not just, you know, the gemstone world, but the jewelry world, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Parlay Gems. Bye-bye. That is what it means in Sanskrit. Did you know that? I did not. Its name in Sanskrit is Ratnaraj, which means king of gems. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Is it pronounced Sanskrit or Sanskrit? Sanskrit. Sanskrit. You sure? I think it's Sanskrit. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to do do that again? Yeah. So you don't talk about skirts. (laughs) People are going to be like, what are Sanskrit's? Okay. So confused. Let's go back to Ruby. Ruby, the king of all gemstones. Yep.